Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Jocelyn Getty, a writer and performer you might know from her work with the Skechersons and the Beaverton, or from her ongoing podcast, I Hate It But I Love It, with friend of the show, Kat Angus. Have you listened to that? You should listen to that. Jocelyn picked Brian De Palma's Carrie the 1976 adaptation of Stephen King's bestseller starring Sissy Spacek as an emotionally abused teenager who manifests spectacular telekinetic powers when she hits puberty and finds they don't make her life any better. Made at a time before the Stephen King movie was its own genre, it's a really unusual horror film in that the horror comes from emotional devastation more than shock or pyrotechnics, but it's also a very strange picture for De Palma, standing slightly to one side of his more consciously controlled genre work, filled with a wilder, scarier energy than we're used to from him. Also, John Travolta and P.J. Schultz, they're just terrifying on their own. This is someone else's movie. Carrie is the first movie I remember seeing that showed me that film could evoke something more than just a pleasant, yay, I'm watching a movie emotion. Okay. I think I'd been, I'd been raised on a steady diet of Spielberg and Lucas up to this point, and I actually saw Carrie at my first ever sleepover where I pulled an all-nighter, um, where I was also an improbable guest. I was definitely two very popular girls, and I don't know why I was there, because okay. <laughs> I was pretty, you know, not to be highly, but to be highly self-deprecating, I was I was pretty low-tier as it went in teenage <laughs> girls. I was, I was not a desirable friend. So I remember seeing this movie and just feeling this flush of identification and mortification um, and profound embarrassment and terror at everything I was seeing. Um, and even though it's such a bizarre film object in the way that so many De Palma movies yeah. are, um, the weirdness of it and the jaggediness of it has always kind of stuck with me. And and it still, it still brings me back to that very primal feeling of being 13 and feeling very very aware of how precarious my position on the on the social ladder was okay. and how everything could kind of topple at a, a moment's notice. So and I mean it's it's fun too because it kind of defies any really easy identification, this movie. Yeah, yeah, that's fair to say. So I wanna just drill into the whole thirteen year old sleepover party. Oh, sure. How many people were there and how did they respond to this? Because that you know, the thing I always forget about Carrie because I pretty sure I've actively blocked it out of my head, <laughs> right? is how explicit it is. Mm -hmm. Not just in the sexuality and the nudity, which... Ick. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's just... You know, I, I first saw it when I was around the same age, I guess. Mm -hmm. I think it was on city TV somehow. Well, weird. Um, and I watched it because I had read the book. I was into Stephen King, and they, they aired it, so maybe the early 80s, so it would have been 12 or 13, yeah. And they ran it with the nudity. Like that opening huh. shower sequence, it wasn't there. There was a version of it that's fogged, but that was not the version that City ran. They ran it uncut, Whoa. and it was really jarring for a for puberty me. I don't know how to explain it. It's like this is everything I should want, and it's horrible. Yes, yes, we felt very much the same way. I remember there were three people there. I remember feeling a shock of revulsion going through the room because the the, the image, the opening images 
aren't stylized so as to be erotic, and they're not at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's the thing that there's a guy named David Hamilton who who specialized. You know his work? I think so. He 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 specialized in pubescent nudity, basically. Like, well, not that's not quite right. Like, 16, 17-year-old girls right. naked a lot. He made a movie called Billitus that was fairly big deal in 1976 or 77. Uh, he made a couple of other movies that they circulated on Super Channel. I never... I, I never saw them in their entirety, but they were always supposed to be these really erotic, you know, artifacts of, of uh, cinema. And then it turns out they're just soft focus creep shots. <laughs> right. Um, but but it, it kind of walks that same line where these, the, the, the actors in the film are of age. You can kind of tell they're a little old to be playing teenagers. Mm-hmm. But they're also pretty convincing and and the attitudes are right, and PJ Souls has that smirk just right for a mean girl, and totally. Sissy Spacek is so vulnerable that you immediately, you know, like you buy it. However old she's supposed to be, she's or however old she really is, she's younger. Yes, and I think she, she was twenty five, playing fifteen. Yeah, and and it works. She yeah. she doesn't look healthy. I mean, she <laughs> looks like someone who's who's been um, physically prevented from maturation absolutely she does as though mama wasn't feeding her or something uh but it but yeah everything about it should play as a certain even the music the denagio score is a little bit seductive and Mm -hmm. it just won't let it get there yes i feel like it's because that sequence is so much about community versus individual Mm. and it's it's really one of the only sequences in film that I can think of off the top of my head that that successfully transcribes what a group of teenage girls acts like and looks like. I mean, I come from a family of six girls. I'm the fourth. I went to an all-girls school. If I went to a camp, it was an all-girls camp. And so the way that the gaggles of teenage girls move with that sort of... There is a, a feral ferocity yeah. to it that the, the film does capture even though at the same time you're like (laughs) is it okay that i'm watching this i feel bad um but yeah the way that it moves through this sort of this this sense of it feels like the movie is is showing you a secret and so there already you feel something transgressive and going on you feel your distance from something that looks so communal and convivial and then when you push in onto carrie by herself you're like oh yes i am alone (laughs) she is alone and so am i in this terrifying group and then of course with that that film does so well both in the or that sequence does so well rather in the in the transition from the communal space to the individual space and then the transition from slow motion to regular speed is how quickly that energy can turn um and and in a way that no other adaptation of carrie has done i don't believe um it 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 focuses that moment on sue which i think is the key thing that makes this version of the film work because when she kind of, um, obviously, I mean, if someone grabs you with a fistful of menstrual blood, you are going to push them off. Yeah. <laughs> but when she kind of initiates that moment, it keeps coming back to her and how she's responding and then to how Carrie looks from her perspective. So I think I think probably it was, it was the focus on Snell that I was really uh, responding to in that moment because... Yeah, it's that feeling of when you when you're so conscious of how other people perceive you and, you know, in this very gross Stanford prison experimenting (laughs) way that you're like, I'd do anything to stay (laughs) in popularity. I'd shove anyone's head underwater so I could stand on top. Um, When when all of this is located in her, it really makes you understand a gross true fact about 
humans that yeah. <laughs> makes you feel very bad. Um, so that that is, I think, the thing that really kind of made me feel. And and the the two other girls who were there were just kind of like gross <laughs> boobs. I was like, I'm having a thing. Right. <laughs> Something bad's going on. So they did not read the. I don't the, think so. The no. Room. No, they definitely did not read the room. And yeah, it's. I mean, we'll, we'll jump all over the place. Don't sure. feel like you have to to stay in one spot. Well, to, to go linearly through it, but cool, the, cool. the progression of um, like the power dynamic that the film is about is we were just talking about a film that played at hot dogs called the magic life of V about a, a woman who, a young woman who escapes into fantasy LARPing to disconnect from the, the trauma of her past and also the, the stress of her present. And what the, what that movie does is show you that the, the, the character she imagines herself as being isn't nearly as powerful or interesting as the woman that's actually there. Right. Uh, Carrie is about someone who takes back her power and agency and uses it to murder everybody. <laughs> yes. Uh, but they have it coming. So <laughs> they do. The film does a really, like, the, the film does something that the book didn't do, uh, which is the the book is much more clinical. It's made up of letters and reports and newspaper stories. And it was Stephen King trying to tell a story he didn't think he should be telling. And you can yeah. feel that distance there. Yeah. Uh, but it works. But the, the movie finds a way to center it and put it all on, on Carrie's shoulders and Sissy Spacek is amazing at showing you the shoulders getting steelier and steelier mm-hmm. uh, over the course of the film, but also everyone else around her becomes weirdly more sympathetic as well, with the possible exception of her primary tormentors. Yes. And that's, yeah, Sue also instantly becomes much more defined and and, sympath- and maybe it's just because it's Amy Irving, mm-hmm. who, who is just a presence of warmth and, and kindness. Absolutely. But, yeah, she, by the time Carrie does unleash her rage, we're feeling bad for them, too. A little bit. Not Absolutely. as much. Absolutely. No, I t- I, that is one of the film's great successes. You do really relate and feel for everyone. I feel like so much of the movie is about the feeling of being swept up in a moment mm-hmm. and how for for better and for worse. I mean, for better with Tommy who you can see going through and William Cat does such a great job of of showing you this guy kind of getting swept up and how it feels to be kind and how it feels to be a hero for this girl. Yeah. Um and Amy Irving who I think is one of the great unsung villains of cinema history in this movie <laughs> shows you both sides of that of what it feels like to be swept up in this moment with all of these other girls and then the the terrifying byproduct of of that moment realizing what it means about herself that she could so easily do something like that you so understand and believe in her quest to prove to herself that she's not a bad person yeah um even as she's doing all of these things you're like sue just take carrie out for a coffee and she will be fine don't set up this elaborate thing with your boyfriend it's not going to work um i think i think it was the pauline kale review and i'm paraphrasing but it was something Something along the lines of De Palma manages to successfully transcribe over the course of a film what it feels like to be swept up in a prank for teenagers, that feeling of a mean joke suspended, and that's certainly the feeling I get from this. But you do absolutely feel for everybody involved. Yeah, most of them don't have this coming. Right? Yeah. Like you, want, you want the punishment to fit the crime, you want the, the comeuppance to be... I mean, you want them to learn a lesson, not burn to death, yes. I suppose. Although maybe that says more about me. And then I'm just, you know, like, I didn't want to watch him suffer, even though, like, Travolta pretty much has it coming. I mean, he kills the pig. He, he's a monster. He's a monster. Uh, he's a monster. I've forgotten. Um, 
I've forgotten their names. Uh, Chris? Chris, thank you. That's PJ Soul's character, the Tormentor? Oh, um, or is that... Yes, Chris... Uh, well, Chris is, yeah, the number one Tormentor. Yes. Yes. She yes. has it coming. Yes. Um, her idiot boyfriend has it coming. <laughs> they're bad people. Yeah. No question. But then De Palma still gives them the scene where they're all trying on tuxedos, and he plays with the speed, and he does that thing he did in home movies where he's just... He's just pranking. He's he's pranking his own characters, and they're they're look how ridiculous they are. But they're also allowed to have fun, and that's the thing that like, I don't know. I mean, I know why Brian De Palma made Carrie. It was a chance to play with Hitchcock and play with split screen and suspense, and it was an easy horror property mm-hmm. that was his thing. He could totally do that. He just made Phantom of the Paradise, and he demonstrated this sort of baroque sensibility and willingness to do whatever the hell he felt like in totally. the service of making the movie more effective. Mm-hmm. But he's not good at caring as a storyteller. And that's what really surprises me. Because Spacek gives that film an emotional core, an emotional heart. And he's not invested in the bad guys at all. He doesn't care what happens to them. It's a shame that William Cat takes a pail to the head and dies <laughs> in the fire. Yeah. But he doesn't care. Like, we're not allowed to see that as tragic. Right. Which, which it kind of is. Absolutely is. Um, it's only... It, it only matters to him because it gets him to the finale. Right. But the fact that he doesn't particularly invest in anyone other than the incredible duet between Spacek and Piper Laurie. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, there, again, that's not someone... I don't think... I think Piper Laurie's character is only sympathetic in as much as Piper Laurie shows us the pain that motivates her fanaticism. Mm-hmm. But De Palma is such a weird choice for this because I got the sense he didn't really... Like, he let a lot of people just figure their own stuff out. And it works, which is the other shocking thing. You're totally right. There is a real bumblebee flies anyway quality yeah. to this movie yeah. that I I also love. I mean, I think I think the thing I probably love the most about it is exactly what you're, tic- are, you're articulating. I don't know why this works so well. But I do think, I think with this, as with Phantom of the Paradise... Um, he certainly has a knack for choosing wildly expressive, bug-eyed thespians <laughs> to translate these overwhelming emotions and the willingness of both Sissy Spacek here um, and William Finley, is it? Finley, yeah. Finley in uh, Phantom of the Paradise to be so translucent in what they're going, just suffuses the rest of the film with an emotion that, you're right, isn't necessarily there yeah. with De Palma left to his own Brothers. Yeah, they're just squirming in agony. <laughs> Everybody's us, having a know, bad time. <laughs> for our edification. Yeah, but it's 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 truly that, I mean, and I do think it's the, the game that Carrie is playing that, again, no other adaptation of Carrie has been willing to do is to make Carrie first um, an object of scorn and some a bit of a an atrocious, monstrous, you do really want to push her away i mean the way that moment in the in the shower sequence is framed the way that sissy spacek is acting Mm -hmm. um is so hysterical as to be revolting and you do i mean as a film watcher and as with the characters you do immediately want to push her away and then the film's game is to make you feel bad for that to make you know that you're now a part of the problem so then the rest of the film becomes this frantic act of like i love her i'm good i mean you're exactly snoo i'm a good person i totally relate to this weird person 
praying mantis woman. Um, so that you're so you're so there, so in the pocket. And then I mean the rest of the film, of course, with all of his weird, all of the weird games he plays, there to to weirdly locate you in the position of the teenagers. Mm-hmm. So you feel so your investment grows and grows. So when you get to that ending moment of everyone and their aunt being bisected, set on fire, electrocuted. It's catharsis. Yeah, yes, it is catharsis in a way. Yeah, but it's it's so strangely elegant, mm-hmm. right? Like the, the opening sequence, the, the music sets it up, but it is, it just collapses into writhing agony. And, and yeah, Sissy Spacek going to whatever place, like she looks like a frog from certain angles. Like really, she's got that cylindrical facial thing going on which makes her alluring and and captivating and fascinating in mm-hmm. badlands and then in this it's just push in with the wrong lens and you you distort her to a point that's really primally unnerving totally and just that shot of her like, i think it is a fisheye lens like she's collapsed in the, and and huddled and screaming and she's barely recognizable as a human in one shot and it's so piercing Mm-hmm. That yeah, we're we're yeah, we're with the bullies for a second, and then we get the shot of the bullies all clustered in, and they're monsters too. And it's like, oh, is this some sort of are, are, are we like, is this a entomological conversation that we're having? Is <laughs> yeah. none of these people supposed to be treated with any humanity? Are they all just beasts? And they kind of are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're they're literally stripped of everything. They're they're really just id and rage and ego, and that of course is what powers carry throughout. But but you have this moment of like a severe connection being formed between us and the screen and nobody we can get behind for a minute. We're just, we're just abandoned. This, this, this calming, clearly humid space where Mm -hmm. all these people are coexisting peacefully and lost in whatever is going on. just shatters instantly. The second those credits are over, you just go (laughs) straight into blood and hell. Yes. And it's, like a signature from from De Palma because he's not like he's never been a, a a fair. I've already said this. He's never been a particularly empathetic person, right? But he knows what he wants to do in this film, and he's just going to keep on hammering it. Even the stuff between um, uh, between Chris and and um, uh, Betty Buckley's character, the, the uh, oh the gym teacher, the, the almost sympathetic gym teacher who still turns on Carrie because she's just impatient. Yeah, that feels so completely real and utterly in the moment and it like it's like it's like a, it's like Frederick Wiseman's high school in color it's just a documentary moment of oh yeah people are shitty to each other because they can be yeah and let's just pile that on more and more and more and then we go home with Carrie and we see where she comes from <laughs> and it's just like oh it's worse it's yeah. actually worse oh did you think that she had a moment's respite <laughs> from the badness right. she does not I think you'll find oh. it's true the film is sort of hysterical from start to finish it, mm. it sustains a fever pitch in its opening notes that never stops yeah. it kind well, of is and then when she develops her powers it's literally screaming at us because <laughs> yeah. they stole that sting from psycho yes yes i wonder what bernard herman's score for this would have been like had he actually <laughs> stuck around to do it i you know you know when you see a little kid and they're laughing kind of they're laughing more and more and they're getting to that point where you're like you're going to start crying or, or throwing up soon. <laughs> that is the feeling of watching Carrie. It's just like, this is going to turn on me <laughs> in a moment. And I don't know when it's coming, but it is coming. Yeah. yeah. And and then Piper Laurie, of course, fits so perfectly into... Yeah, that's a performance. I mean, that is... 
it's um i mean i remember reading king sort of writing around it in dance macabre his book his non-fiction book about uh, horror and, ah. in, in literature and cinema and he sort of has to deal with his own adaptations because this was like 81 82 oh cool so carrie exists the shining was maybe just finished oh. um and he's sort of dealing with carrie he's trying to deal with it um academically intellectually but you can tell like he's kind of jealous that de palma figured out how to handle mrs white because uh, he didn't give her that much in the book. She's a figure. She's per, she's a peripheral figure because okay. she's like dead before the book starts. Since it's all about flashbacks, and so is Carrie. But there's no, no. But it, it feels like Mrs. White doesn't exist in three dimensions because she didn't have any friends. Right. So you know, Sue's written the book that we understand Carrie through. Mrs. White's just sort of there. She, mm. She's a she's a historical figure. Right. And so King mentions at one point, I think, I think it was in the book that. Uh, De Palma and Lawrence Gordon gave her more of a, a specific Catholicism mm-hmm. and a religious root for her rage because um, the Bible stuff is very specific to the point where like, Piper Laurie delivers it with this weird offhanded comfort yes. that she's been saying these things so long they've, the, the words don't have any meaning it's all about the rhythm yeah. and she just yeah. wants to harangue and shame mm-hmm. and this is the phrase that does that best so here it comes and it's so unnerving that that closet that she's built and that's just a triumph of production design because that jesus is the scariest jesus i've ever seen it's the worst yeah. why are its eyes so white right it's like a day glow reflection thing yeah but I, that was the, i'm pretty sure in my teenage head that that was the first image i ever saw from carrie beforehand and i didn't understand it oh. and then when i saw it in the film like properly linearly it was really unsettling oh i thought i dreamed that like that's <laughs> that, i know that image and i don't like it yeah. and now it's looking at me it's so horrible <laughs> yeah it's the perfect example of how everything in carrie's life is twi- i mean anything that could provide the smallest form of comfort is just twisted and perverted beyond yeah beyond um anything i mean piper laurie famously described this movie as a black comedy insisted that that's what she thought she was in the entire time which you can see there's a little virginia wolf in there there's a wee bit of virginia and while i i disagree with a lot of people's assertion that the film is camp i do oh no yeah no no. no. I, i absolutely buy into um de palma's uh, assertion that he's creating a teenage reality, which I think is absolutely true. Um, certainly, she's she her, her willingness to come in with a different energy, with a lighter energy, is what makes this character so creepy. Mm-hmm. And no one else has been able to do it as well because everyone who has come since, with the exception of Betty Buckley, but I'll get into that in a second. Um, Everyone who's come since has really tried to embody this character as a scary, malevolent object, you know, coming with... But but you're right, it's something about the way that she embodies religion is just the... The, the rhythms of what she's saying, she finds pleasing. It doesn't mean anything. And if you go through and take the Bible passages that she's um, citing, none of them reflect what she's actually saying. So her version of religion is this insane gobbledygook conflagration of badness. Um, but the the joy and the serenity with which she delivers it yeah. is so odd and frightening. Um, Betty Buckley pay, played uh, Mrs. White 
in the notoriously oh, ill-fated so adaptation, yeah, when they went to Broadway, it was originally Barbara Cook um, when it was on the West End. Okay. They nearly decapitated her with a piece of flying scenery. She quit. They were like, fair. So <laughs> <laughs> when it came to Broadway, they they took it to old belting Betty Buckley and um, uh, Lindsay Hatley, who played Carrie in the in the state adaptation, uh, talked about how when they went to do the bows, because she dies, the ending of the musical is that they walk down this insane flight of stairs that comes down. It doesn't make a lick of sense. Um, but she walks down, she dies at the base of the stairs, and then everyone ran out. And the second the entire chorus ran out, it was just instant booing. <laughs> like, just a, not a wall of anger coming at them. And so poor uh, Lindsay is lying there being like, well... Betty and I are going to have to get up and take the final bows. This is horrendous. And then as soon as they got up, it immediately switched on a dime to just cheers, like rapturous Mm. cheers, because both of them had been playing with this wild, loose, weird energy that's closer to what Piper Laurie was doing in the movie, and it works. You can see, uh, not that I condone bootleggery, but if you were to look on YouTube for a bootleg of Carrie the Musical produced by the Royal Shakespearean Company in 1981, it can be found. I had issues with that. (laughs) Not with YouTube, but with the fact that the Royal Shakespeare Company somehow got involved. It's dark. (laughs) (laughs) It's dark. I mean, yeah, okay, there's some elemental narrative threads there of of adolescent rebellion and and suffocating parenting, but I don't see how you make a musical out of it. I really (laughs) don't, and I've tried. Ooh, it doesn't work. I mean, I can see that the... That maybe the people making the musical thought they were translating the sort of what what appears to be weird tone shifting of De Palma mm-hmm. movies, how it goes from the most Baroquean angles and organs and Bernard Herrmann scores to like a fun jazzy time with yeah. <laughs> slow motion and sped up. Um, so I, I get that they thought that maybe they were translating that aspect of it, but what you get is the people who made fame. Right. Doing a musical about Carrie. <laughs> yeah, I think there there is definitely a place in the world for camp, but Carrie refuses it. Like it, it's just mm-hmm. it's tragic and awful, and everyone's going to die, and there's really no way to make that in any way self aware fun. Yes, yes, absolutely, and it's funny, isn't it? Because you're right, De Palma doesn't care, but there's something about the way he frames his protagonists that makes you feel for them. Mm-hmm. So much. I mean, at the core of this this grand, strange, atonal clusterfuck yeah. is this deeply felt performance and and the shots, the closeness of her. The fact that her most emotional moments are kind of beyond words mm-hmm. um, links you to something that's deep and primal and awful and awful to feel and awful to witness. Yeah, well, the... I mean, the, the Jesus eyes moment is is echoed by Spacek herself, right? Mm-hmm. From the from the stage when she's actually drenched in blood, her eyes are the only thing that are clear because her eyes were closed, and so when she opens them, they're just, just, just marbles of evil. Uh, <laughs> yes. Like it's not even not evil, not even evil, but rage, betrayal, and rage and shame, and all those things that Mrs. White was telling her would happen. You know, yep, okay. Here there it they is. Are. They're all, they are all, in fact, <laughs> laughing at you. So what are you going to do? Well, kill them all. Kill them uh, all. Because they don't know what you know. And that's, I mean, ultimately, um, I had a friend 
who thought, when was this? It's in the nineties sometime when the second uh, carry when the Rage Carry Two came out. Oh yes, which not great, but not nearly as bad as its reputation. It it was sort of okay. It's yeah. It, it understands the the core principle, which is. Um, internalized misogyny and, and, and the tyranny of high school and the mean girls thing and the and the fact that uh, <laughs> go figure in 1990 whatever it was kind of weird to think that maybe women have powers that we don't fully understand and abilities and not you know not the psychic stuff but just that there might be value in being a teenage girl yeah um, and uh, I would really love to see a contemporary Carrie remake now oh me too just to see how it would work because the um, the Kimberly Pierce remake didn't work. Like no. it just, it just didn't work. And I, uh, the thing that fascinated me about the sequel, about um, the, the the performance of the lead, Emily Burgle, she basically had to pretend she'd never seen Carrie, which is a, a really interesting challenge, right, for an actor. But the character is Carrie's secret daughter. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> sure. Or niece or something. I forget how it worked, but there was a blood relation that made. No sense whatsoever. Right. But the idea being you have to somehow hint at what Spacek did without ever tipping your hand mm. uh, to the point where if you watch it again, you can actually see moments of reference that, I mean, and Burgle talked about it, it was important to her, and it has to work in the film. And that alone is a really interesting place to go but there's still nowhere to take the story except well everybody does everybody like there's does. there's a messy bloody thing and spacek does that so well that there's just no point in trying to do it again it's true you're right i mean i feel like i wondered from my original point but basically sissy spacek found something well yeah i mean she she's talked about um She's talked about a couple of moments that her husband helped her tap into uh, and Brian De Palma helped her tap into for this movie that that are really interesting. So she she was saying that when they went to do the, the shower sequence, she asked Brian De Palma what he was trying to evoke. He was like, I want you to imagine being hit by a truck. And then she went to her husband, Jack Fisk, a uh, wonderful set designer, mm-hmm. um, who had been hit by a truck and was like, tell me what that was like. <laughs> There's something so real and unmannered about her that sometimes with other actresses of her generation, you can, in that famous Pauline Kael criticism, kind of see the wheels clicking about. You never see that with Sissy Spacek. I think she just goes straight into the heart of an emotion and she doesn't put a cap on um, cap on the expression of something. I also always get the impression from her that she genuinely doesn't care what she looks like on screen, which I found really um, anarchic and bold, especially as a teenager. Because when you're a kid, and especially when you're a girl, so much of your life is about containment, containing your emotions, containing the way you present, trying to ward off any potential criticism by making yourself concrete. Mm -hmm. And the fact that she was willing to be so so strange in her angle, so willing to be portrayed in this, you're right, kind of almost as an unformed object. Um, She looks, I think, again, Pauline Kael, but described her as looking almost like a fetus in some shots. And that is kind of true. I mean, so it's, there's something about her willingness to be depicted in this wild, untamed state that I think has never been achieved again. But I I do, I agree. I think Emily Burgle saw something in that and tried to replicate a similar emotional wildness and achieve a certain amount of carefreeness in the way that she was depicted that makes 
the perform the entire movie take flight mm-hmm. because you're right the the Kimberly Pierce adaptation didn't work and I think the problem with it is that it has too much this sounds horrible but it has too much sympathy for Carrie it's trying to make her too sympathetic an object and while that is true the film and the book are about that that horrible thing that we do to people um we, we desperately assert their otherness from us so that we can establish our superiority. And the more we identify with her, the more we're not identifying with the overall project's aim, which is to make us recognize how gross we can all be. Mm-hmm. Um, so now, I think, you're right, someone, if they, if they were willing to get to the heart of grossness and, and weird behaviors, and actually, now that I say that, I think now you could do a really good adaptation of this because we're in such a collective political moment of thoughts and prayers, but not actually good actions. Right. No, that's what I mean. Like, <laughs> if you if you tackled it from the position of awareness, mm-hmm. like the people are more aware of social machinery now than ever before, or at least we're more willing to talk about it than ever before. I just a mumblecore version of Carrie, where you're just focusing in on the weird kid. Yeah. That's, I don't know that anybody's tried that yet. I mean, if you try to do this story now, yeah, there's Pierce's film. The thing I keep thinking about is the craft as well, where Mm -hmm. the idea is that power is dangerous and corrupting and you need one person to call the other person out. Carrie doesn't have anybody. Mm -hmm. So she's isolated uh, and scared and everywhere she turns, particularly in De Palma's film, there's just more damage. And I think now you can understand where we could actually have a, a film that deals with the idea of where that damage comes from and why it's happening in a way that none of the previous versions has. That's true. I definitely think, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I think there would be a way to hone in on, yeah, a little bit more about everything she's going through and and I mean, as it is, this this movie does sort of hint in that direction and does an interesting thing in the way it shows everyone's good intentions calcifying into yeah. something negative. I mean, one of my favorite sequences is that moment where Betty Buckley's gym teacher runs into Carrie, yeah. makes a big show of, you know, you could be a pretty girl and he could really mean it. And then that abrupt cut to her confronting uh, Tommy and Sue. It's so awful and mean because it makes you realize she didn't believe a word she just said. She just out and out lied to this poor girl um, and has thrust her forward along this bad path that's going to lead to everybody dying and her being cut in half. Mm. Um, but yeah, her decision to to lie in that moment is so it's gross and fascinating and interesting. Um, but yeah, I wish I guess I wish there was a bit more of that and I. As you say, I think a contemporary redo of this could focus a bit more in a mumblecore sense on how this is all unpacking in Carrie. Yeah, I mean, if you strip out the baroqueness of it mm-hmm. and you just leave us with her, then maybe. But the other issue then becomes, you know, like, who do you who do you get to embody that? Because that's that's going to be a really hard performance to sell. <laughs> uh, you'd have to be alone with her for so much time, and and, and you know, even Spacek doesn't allow Carrie to enjoy the powers, except that one moment where she flips the kid off the bike, which is so great. <laughs> so good. And it happens so fast. It's that, like, that feels like the purest De Palma moment to me, the moment where he cracked it, where he knew how he could tell the story. Mm. It's just that one little moment where this kid we've never seen before rides by, <laughs> calls her creepy Carrie, and she she probably broke his neck or his legs. It's so true. That is also Betty Buckley's voice. 
Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's Betty Buckley, <laughs> which is why it sounds so weird. I mean, it is ab- it's a great kid voice, but there's just a hint of strangeness. I just assumed it was ADR. That's correct. Oh yeah. I mean, and it the, is. <laughs> the way the kid just goes, Oh yeah. when it falls, you're like, ah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and even Space it gets a tiny little smile. I, and yeah. I think it's the first one. Yeah. In the movie that she, she smells a couple of times, but they're always really hesitant. That's the only one that's for her. It's you're right, and part of what makes this version so hard is that Carrie doesn't believe in any of it until the last possible second, and it makes you feel so dreadful because she spent the entire build up to the prom moment resisting, 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 and even as she's dancing with Tommy, the the conversation is still, "Why are you doing this? What is this about?" So. <sighs> It's so horrible that her two, I guess, two real moments of pure happiness mm-hmm. are flipping a kid off Burning his bike, child, and yeah. then, all right, fine, fine, I am going to agree with. Oh, okay, this was a prank. Well, fuck everybody. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, still sad though. It's so, it's so awful. I mean, and I, it's funny because in my writing, I mean, I mostly write. Um, other than writing comedy, I write a lot of kids stuff. Um, I. I love, I love upbeat narratives. I love neatly packaged narratives. Um, I don't know why there's a part of me that gravitates towards the the wildness and the unformedness and the sadness of this. But it makes me so sad in a way that I find perversely pleasurable. <laughs> I get that. I get that. I mean, I think on some level there is a moral clarity to carry, where the mm. bad people get what's coming to them. You know, like on a on a grand scale uh but also she does even though she is ultimately consumed and brings the house down on herself and in a way that's just nightmarish yeah uh retreating to that one small space where she's been happy uh, (laughs) to die uh like a wounded animal but also to be in that room with that again with that jesus thing that just glows at her until it goes away And and it is really unnerving um the way that de palma holds on that that visage and just it doesn't do anything i keep waiting for it to move oh i know but you assume yeah because this is a horror movie (laughs) yeah that's probably going to be a thing (laughs) Uh, everything is going to become hostile why not (laughs) um but but the idea that carrie's only release is to destroy she never uses the power for anything positive not even for herself Mm -hmm. she doesn't you know it's because she doesn't have full control over it and she rejects it in some way uh and then only by embracing it to do harm when the rage consumes her uh that that makes sense narratively but you you just you're always reminded over and over again that every you know every x-men movie every superhero story has a moment where the where that where the mutant or the alien or the superpowered character uses their powers to just do something amusing and satisfying yeah you know bobby making a snowball in in the first x-men or um just somebody stretching to grab something in one of the Fantastic Four movies. There's there's always a sense that, oh, these things can be pleasurable. They're, they're, they can be fun. And if you had them, you'd relate to the world differently. And Carrie gets none of that from her ability. It's just a curse. That's true. And actually, as you said that, it sort of occurred to me that, that part of this film's cynicism is also part of what makes it appealing and truthful, which is to say that if you've spent your entire life being oppressed and downtrodden, the sort of the collective perspective is that if you're provided the tools to get out of there, you immediately will know how. And that's right. simply not true. For someone like her, 
I, I don't know that she even has the self-awareness or the agency to conceive that there is a way out, mm. that her powers could be used for anything but badness. And they've been so codified against her by her mother's insistence that they're, they have some sort of satanic origin um, that she can't conceive of them as being pleasurable or positive or, or for her amusement or benefit in any way, which is an awful notion, but there is something that is as as gross as it is, there is something clear-eyed about that. Um, and it does make you realize that, I mean, all of these party lines we tow about like, well, so-and-so has X resource, why didn't they just use it to pull themselves out of it? You're sure, like, because yeah. you can't. It's not always... You cannot conceive of doing so, then you can't do something. You yeah. simply can't do so, yeah. It makes you, I mean, it sort of in this new vision of the film that we're formulating sure. in the moment, which feels great. Um, <laughs> it's, it does kind of suspend that, that thing that I have always felt is the film's project to make, to sort of turn the camera back on you and be like, you are a bad person. <laughs> yeah. You're a bit of a bad person. And if you, you just assume that this person was going to be okay, you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's, it's dreadful. It really sticks in your gut, but it is, it is, it's effective in that way. I, I guess it's its project is to be disturbing in the long term mm -hmm. um, by letting you know that there is no respite for this character and no safe space. I mean, as much as gross, glow-eyed Jesus is in the closet. <laughs> yeah, he's not there to help. He's not there to help. <laughs> Same with that. When she comes up into her bedroom covered in blood and her mother's just behind the door the oh, entire time, right. which is... Shades of Hereditary, or I guess Hereditary, Shades of Carrie, and yeah. all of the other films at Cribbed. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I just to 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 digress into Hereditary for one second. Absolutely, the first hour is so much more effective because we don't know what's going on. The second it clarifies, it becomes like, oh, I know what kind of movie this is. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine now. Yeah, I was I was nauseous a minute ago, but now I know it's demons. Cool. <laughs> oh well, do you, yeah, do you but, in that case. yeah, but if your mother emerges from from the door to comfort, ostensibly to comfort you, and Carrie, like Sissy Spacek, gives us that we know she doesn't trust her. She, mm -hmm. you see the hesitancy, you see the trauma. This has never happened. Mother, why are you nice now? Yes. Uh, I'm covered in blood. <laughs> this is the time when you would start yelling about how right you are. And to get no solace, to get no comfort from your mother in that moment, it's just, it's crippling. Um, because, yeah, we thought it was bad before. <laughs> it's just every single step. And it's the, it's the thing that King does narratively better than almost any other horror writer is totally. that, you know, we're going to take you by the hand and take you somewhere bad. And then, oh, there's another room behind that. Oh, hang on. <laughs> wait a second. You can see the future, but you have a brain tumor. Hang on. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. And, you know, the dead zone ends that way. Firestarter ends with an eight-year-old girl losing everything and, and walking into the, the offices of Rolling Stone. Like, that's going to make it any better. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, all of his... Uh, so he started to trend back towards hope recently, and it's not a good look. Like it's a weird fit for him. I agree. It doesn't work for him. He wants he wants to take us through that experience of everything slowly being stripped away. And you're right. Carrie is an exercise, and basically De Palma and King sneaking their heads in around the frame and being like, "Are you having a bad time? Yeah. What if you were having a worse <laughs> time?" <laughs> Steve, I've been thinking. There's there's a beat here that's missing. Why don't we have her actually stab her child? I mean, why not? Why don't we have Sissy Spacek not just killing her mother, but then watching her mother slowly and erotically die? <laughs> it's 
It is, yeah. Erotically, I was about to challenge that, but no, I think I have to give it to you. Yeah, it's, it, like, yeah. it's religious ecstasy, right? Like, if you're going to show that, if you're showing this woman who has lived at least her adult life in a state of severe denial about the way the world works and who she is and what her purpose is, she's getting what she wants. And it's yeah. satisfying. Like, she's... It's maybe... I mean, I just keep thinking that's why people think it's camp, because after all that escalation, this is how she goes out. Mm -hmm. But we also get to see the sadness in SpaceX's eyes, because she doesn't want to be here. She didn't want to do this. this. None of this was her intention. But again, it comes back to the power, right? Like the Her first uses of it are so awkward and ill-considered, and she She's scared of it. There's that moment where she, there's a scene where she trains herself a little bit Mm -hmm. and it's still way out of proportion and she can't control it. And then when she finally gives into it, it's really fucking precise. (laughs) She can do whatever she wants. I mean, all the murders in the, in the gymnasium are, a couple of them are people just trampling each other, but she's throwing stuff at people. She's sticking her landings. She's like, her aim is true. (laughs) And then when she gets to, Mama White, she is, I mean, she's going for specific body points and arteries, and it's just, it's cruelty in the film's terms, but the precision of it feels triumphant in a way that I don't know that it was supposed to. Yeah, it's this weird, it's it's, it's such a weird moment. I mean, the way I've always kind of looked at it is, you're right, it's a triumphant moment for, um, for Piper Laurie's character, because it, for her in that moment. Oh, she's proven right. She's proven right. This yeah. is her validation. Absolutely. She gets to die a martyr and her daughter is Satan. Congratulations to me. Yeah. Um, it is kind of not the best commentary on your ability to raise a child. <laughs> I guess if her belief was that this child was bad all along, right? Finally, after however many years, I'm proven right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Through the mortification of my flesh, mm-hmm. I get to go out a winner. <laughs> bad mom, but a winner in a sense. But you're, there's something about the specificity of the way that she's hitting her mom, where exactly the injuries are. I mean, it's and the that sort of moment where as Piper Laurie's writhing around and moaning and thrashing and she keeps curling up into a ball and then looking over and then hiding herself again, but then looking over. Yeah. It's this weird composite of, I hate what's happening. I want to distance myself from what's happening. I love that I did this, and I don't know what that means about me. And the fact that Carrie has to sit in that final moment of, I don't know who or what I am, and I don't know whose perspective on me is right, is the ultimate fuck you from everybody in this movie. It's it's such a horrible thing to sit in. Dreadful to see, dreadful to feel, fun to watch. It is, but that's it, right? Like, it is... You can get a vicarious glee out of it because it's a horror movie and the horror movie is over. And that's the climax. That's what we have. That's what we're trained to expect. You know, it's the the resolution of all the plot lines we've been watching. It looks gorgeous. Mm -hmm. It is visually striking and it sounds like those stings are really quite powerful. Totally. The score is giving in. Like the whole movie is surrendering to the abandonment of restraint and and even consideration for human life that Carrie has been struggling with for this whole movie. Because, again, she has this power all along. It manifests at the beginning of the movie. We are with her throughout. Mm -hmm. And she could kill these people at any time, but she chooses not to. She's always doing what she believes is the right thing or the necessary thing. And right up until that ultimate betrayal, 
she's on her way to being a better person, I think. But uh, the scene with you know the scene with Betty Buckley where she she just lies to her, and then it's you get the sense too that she's just impatient with her. That yeah. she would really that the adults would really like these kids to figure this shit out because come on, we've all been through it. And there's that sense that when you like you and I were both young enough that we hadn't experienced most of these defining high school moments right and now looking back as adults it's just like well yeah obviously they're hysterical and it's too much but when you're in it you don't feel that and and this this whole intensity that runs through the whole movie the sense that everything is the most important thing that's ever happened that's teenagehood to me that's like the perfect encapsulation of that feeling and so now she gets to realize her potential and it's only to destroy yeah. Ultimately, herself. Like, I mean, she just after bringing it out, she pulls it all back in and brings the house down on herself, and it's just it gets back to being tragic after all that vicarious bloodshed, which is you know ostensibly the reason we go see horror movies is you're going to watch people die in a safe um, environment for us. Mm-hmm. Then we're trapped with her in this in another s- small environment, and it's awful. Oh, so like, it's awful. not fun anymore. <laughs> It's true. The the films, the way the film constantly returns to the homestead um, to sort of continue to play out its dreadful, awful, sad themes is so effective because I think this idea of the monstrous mother is so resonant in virtually every horror movie since the dawn of time. Um, and it's, I mean, there there is something dreadful for most people to imagine about the homestead being a, a locus of, of sadness and fear. But... Um, yeah, I mean, it's so effective every single time we go back there and everything falls apart yet again for poor old Carrie. Yeah. <laughs> the, remind, the reminders that we keep getting that a success in the world will still be, well, twisted and broken and, and nothing nothing good can ever grow in her life because there's just no fertile ground for her anywhere. Yeah. No, it's it's that moment at the end of Bride of Frankenstein, like, we belong dead. Yeah. There, there just... is no end here. There's Or there is an ending, but there's no good one. Yes, exactly. Dreadful. Yeah. <laughs> and then even after that, De Palma gives us the sting with, uh, with Sue's dream, which is, you know, hey, congratulations, you survived this nightmare, but... Um, Did you? Know, you? <laughs> you, don't, you don't ever get away to leave it behind. You don't ever get away from it. Which is Which is my favorite part. Of the entire film, I think. I mean, the fact that it transfers the entire experience back onto Sue and is a reminder of what all of her empty gestures have led to this. Because, I mean, Sue Sue is one of, I mentioned her earlier, is one of the great unsung villains. Right. I do really feel like that's true. I mean, she's sort of because Chris is so overtly monstrous in her actions, Sue's badness really recedes into the background it's easy to forget that this is a person who put her own boyfriend in the line of fire so she didn't have to be seen being nice to Carrie. She can engineer that moment, but she doesn't have to be a part of it. She doesn't have to surrender anything of her social standing. So she's just enabling things passively. Exactly. Um, So the knowledge that she then gets to carry this, haha, Carrie, (laughs) um, for the rest of her life is is the best final note for this entire thing. You've seen poor Carrie have the worst time in the entire world. Um, Again, everything bad that can possibly happen. And then just to know that the person who facilitated this entire thing starting has to, has to know this bad thing about herself for the rest of her life is the most haunting thing I can imagine that 
that a part of you will always hate and fear the things you saw about yourself when you were 13 and 14 and 15. Those will never leave you. It's true. And it's, I was going to say that's, yeah, everybody has that. It's just that we're not complicit in the the deaths of dozens of people the way that (laughs) that Sue is. But yeah, it's, I mean, she, we don't get to spend any time with her conscious. We don't really get to see how she's carrying this, but Mm -hmm. the fact that the dream logic is, I mean, what's on it? What's on Carrie's tombstone? Burn in hell? Yeah. Carrie White burn in hell. Yeah. Which probably not real. Yeah. Um, I would assume there wouldn't even be like, would anybody even, that's the other thing too. Like in the meta narrative of the story, does anybody even really understand what happened? Yeah. Why would anyone blame her? The only person who knows is Sue because she didn't go or she got out. It's, it's just, it's such a great, weird, um, abdication of responsibility in Sue's dream because she's taking her flowers and she's the nice person and she feels the sadness. And I believe all that is true, Mm. but the dream knows it's a lie. Yeah. (laughs) I absolutely agree. I think it's, I think it's so fun and fascinating. (laughs) I mean, so much of me wants, wants this movie to stick it to Sue a little bit more. And I think she is more present in the book and in the 2012 Broadway, uh, Broadway re- revamped Carrie. So that wasn't the musical. No, that was the this musical. Was a, uh, they did another version of the musical. It came back. How do people do these things? I don't know. Uh, that's the version that they ended up doing in Riverdale. It just sort of strips out the campy elements, but it doesn't work. Uh, again, because it's still bad. Sue is more present, but they they again they don't sort of position her um, in the this sort of pseudo villainous light that I would like it to, but you're right about the dream at it, it all. It's an abdication of her responsibility that isn't true. And the dream still sticks at her at the end. Yeah. My favorite detail about that is that, uh, the actress playing, um, Sue's mom is Amy Irving's real mom. Um, and was apparently so upset by Amy Irving moving to hysteria that at some point she just dropped character and was like, Amy, what's going on? You don't hear it because the music is so loud, but right. I like that tiny detail. <laughs> Sissy Spacek said she used to sneak into screenings of Carrie just to watch the ending moment just because she liked it so much. <laughs> everyone's so calm. Everyone's glad that the horror is over and that it's so awful. And then it's over. Yeah, I knew about it. It was spoiled for me because by the time I saw the film, there was already talk about Scary Shock and it was that one in Friday the 13th where, you know, like just it stings you. Right. And the one in Friday the 13th is dopey. Yeah. Because uh, it's just a guy in makeup and it's completely unmotivated. But it was obviously ripping off Carrie where the same idea of, you know, a, a placid coda to this horror is just like, nope, still going. Like, <laughs> I love I love De Palma because he's the only director who would inflict that on people. Totally. Because he's almost, not almost... I think it's because he is willing to overlook how much he's put them through already. That's true. <laughs> I mean, every other horror movie, the rule is when the monster dies, the movie's over. Right. And even if Carrie isn't truly a monster, it ends with her death. Mm-hmm. That is, like, I think, honestly, if you close on that black screen after the light on Jesus' eyes goes out, you don't, you know, it's a bigger trauma than it is to give people that breathing space and then have the shock. Mm-hmm. Um, because everybody says, oh, the scariest moment is when the hand came. I was like, that's not the scariest moment in Carrie. No. It's a surprising moment. Yes. But no. <laughs> the scariest moment is this teenage girl dying alone in her own... I mean, it's just alone with herself and her loathing and, 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 a, and a God that isn't going to forgive anything and just this empty empty death that she gives herself. That she gives herself. Oh, I know. Um, and it feels like you know, King didn't write that 
we never find out what happens in the book. We just know that she, like, I think they find her in the wreckage of the house, but the, the whole, the Christian stuff was added mm. uh, and amped up. And to, to brilliant effect. I mean, it's one of the great um, tweaks to a King novel because so often when people deviate from King's actual plotting, it just falls apart. Right. But this is a, it's like they built an addition onto his house and it's a really good one. Um, but the, the sting at the end, the shock of, of the hand coming out of the grave, and it, I, I, my one bit of trivia is that I know it wasn't an actor, it's a piston. It's an arm mounted, it's a fake arm mounted on something that would fire it directly up. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> and Irving didn't know exactly when it was going to happen. She knew it was going to happen, but she they, they did multiple takes right. and they would vary it. So what we see is, it's not the first take, what we see is someone who's already been spooked once or twice and is really, really nervous. So when she moves her arm forward, it's the motion's wrong and it's just enough for our brains to go, there's she's apprehensive, but why? And then the thing pops up and it's oh. and the music fires up and it's just it's this great um moment of someone conducting the scare. Mm-hmm. Uh but all of those pieces, again, not in the book. They're just thrown in. And it's amazingly powerful, but also it lets you shake it off a bit, right? Because your heart rate returns to normal and because of the recency effect you only think about that last scare right. rather than oh yeah i spent 40 seconds in a dark space with a dying teenager <laughs> yeah. uh, in abject misery that's fine that's fine <laughs> hey at least she died of uh, mother inflicted knife wounds before the entire house collapsed on her sure that's a that's a gift that's a blessing. <laughs> we'll take it no you're right i can definitely see that <laughs> argument as well um and and by rights the movie should probably end in that moment with carrie um, there's a part of me that, again, just identifying so strongly with Sue and oh, recognizing yeah, yeah. that, that I love that. End, but I do agree. There is the, the there is a clearer ending to the film and a more clear identification with Carrie that ends at that part of the film. And it's just Brian De Palma, as you say, being like, I don't really give a fuck about anyone. Yeah. So what if I continued making you feel bad? Yeah, I mean, this, this ending is already effective, but what would a really sadistic person do? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I just want you to feel flattened with horror by the time you leave. Pulped. Yes, exactly. Yes. Are you pulped? Not yet. No. Okay, hold on. <laughs> yeah, let me keep working on you. I'm pretty sure I can get more out of you. I mean, oh, yeah. it's what I love and and find repulsive about him as a filmmaker all at the same time is that it just feels like someone working on you in every conceivable way. He doesn't necessarily have an interest in telling a story or letting you sink into a narrative or um, engaging with you in the sense that he's providing a narrative experience that he wants you to follow on. He just wants to evoke feelings, certain feelings at certain moments. Mm-hmm. And so the the sensation of watching one of his movies is is feeling different parts of your brain and your body being activated in different ways and different points in time. It's profoundly discombobulating because by the end of it, you've truly felt everything. Yeah. You felt confused. You felt embarrassed. You felt weird. You felt absolutely horrified. So you really do feel as though someone just put you through his strange press and then <laughs> flattened every single part of your body before he was willing to let you go. Yeah. I can see why people credited him. You know, like the new Hitchcock, the new Master of Suspense. He really just sledgehammers it down. Totally. But not in a, at least not in this film, not in a manipulative way. Like, it all feels organic. It all feels like part of the story he's telling. Mm -hmm. And um, 
there there is that yeah it's basic the humanity that refuses to be beaten out of it the film mm-hmm. and she is it's beating hard and it's just it's awful it's like you're watching a specimen be dissected absolutely it's it's truly truly awful um yeah and and I think it's it's why I mean there's so much discussion over why De Palma hasn't you know wasn't sort of lifted up as part of his generation and I think it's because his filmmaking is so disjointed and strange but it is all held together in this strange dreamlike tenuous teenage reality that lends an emotional an emotional truth to everything that's happening even when it feels improbable and strange you can understand why the characters do what they do when they do it you can understand why the film operates in the strange weird ways that it does um, and the luridity of its color scheme and the its shocking angles and all of the things it evokes are all in service of this heightened teenage emotion that that helps you engage and invest in this true descent into the horrors of being a teenager. Yeah, but that is it, right? I mean, it knows what it feels like. It yeah. knows what this would feel like to teenagers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the combination of horror and, and fascination and revulsion and glee... And it's like it's like inappropriately laughing at things. Yeah, Travolta does a lot of that. I mean, he doesn't. This was right before he blew up as an actor, and and his. I mean, he's on the DVD box, which I think is very silly. It's extraordinary. Um, it's such a like, weird choice. I think it's like second billing after Space It here. <laughs> yeah, that's so. That's yeah. crazed. Like, you know John Travolta, right? Kids, come <laughs> come and see the funny man. <laughs> Because this is, I mean, this is that thing where, you know, people point to it and say, well, you know, if he wanted to be a serious dramatic act, he was doing that also. He was doing all kinds of stuff. And it's just, it's such a strange alien performance now in light of what we've seen him do. Absolutely. But also you've got the hair and the sideburns. Like, he looks ridiculous. And that Part of that is the 70s aesthetic, which is the other thing that makes me want to remake it now because hipsters have come back around to looking like that. <laughs> That's like you amazing. Could, you, could set a, you could do a contemporary carry and just the same way that Richard Dreyfuss in Jaws now looks like every 25-year-old mm-hmm. looks like Richard Dreyfuss as Matt Hooper, you could probably get away with it. Like, even Carrie's look, the, if you replicated Spacek's look, she wouldn't be out of place anymore. True. It would be like a, a Gwyneth Paltrow goop purity thing. <laughs> yes. But maybe that's it. Instead of religion, she's been raised with that. I don't know. But, but, oh, perfect. Yeah. I mean, Mrs. White's an anti-vaxxer, I'm sure. Absolutely. But, but there are places you can take it that don't change the model, that don't change the way things play out. And that's because it understands the elemental teenageness of it, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the, the, the rage of, of hormones and the confusion of puberty and the, the sense that everything, that you are the most important person in the world, the, the inherent narcissism of everyone except Carrie, who is self-deleting yes. in so many ways, but is the most important person in the world because look at what she can do. And that's the other thing that King's books get is they're always outsiders. The people with powers are never happy. Mm-hmm. They're punished. They're broken and and abandoned and ruined and that is the teenage experience like even if you're popular and successful unless you have absolutely no empathy (laughs) that's not who you are totally it's a mask and and this movie gets that so well before we were even really talking about it in any you know uh cohesive way Mm mm-hmm this movie was there to say, oh yeah, no, it's awful and it's worse if you have power. Yes. 
absolutely, absolutely. No one feels safe at any time. I mean, and you're right, that entire idea is what motivate. I mean, Sue is ostensibly one of the most popular girls at school, and yet she feels that so little that she's willing to do whatever it takes mm-hmm. to to push away the other, to make sure that, that none of that stink ends up on her. Yeah, don't touch me, you're a leper. Don't touch me, exactly. Yeah. You are you are as disgusting as a person can be, and I want to make sure everyone sees that you're not allowed to touch me, and I get to be a part of that. I also identify with her, I think, now it's occurring to me, because I really enjoy getting the, uh, the adulation and praise of adults. <laughs> the fact that the first person that comes in is the gym teacher to tell her off, and she's like, oh, well, now it's bad if a teacher says. Yeah, no, I, I am really all for your idea for a goop centered. <laughs> I would formally like to put myself forward to play Mrs. White, the goopier. <laughs> like, what would that? The goopier? Is that it? Like oh, a sommelier? Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. The goopier. Eat a lot of crystals, I assume, and <laughs> never get vaccinated for anything. Sure. I don't need to. I'm pure. I am pure. I'm touched by. Oh, I don't know. Um, an alien's yeah. light? It will be aliens or something. It'll be some other weird cult. I do feel like Gwyneth Paltrow could really get to the weirdness <laughs> inherent there, here. There is a movie where she looks like Spacek. Like where she's done this like straightened hair and she's very gaunt. Mm. I can't remember what it is, but it was around the, the years after the talented Mr. Ripley where I can see she sort of boomeranged away from glamour mm. for one role. I can't remember what it was. Just for a quick one. I can see that though, because the thing with being I mean the pale, pale redhead slash blonde that Sissy Spacek is mm-hmm. here without mascara. You just look like, where are you? Where's your, where are your features? Yes, yeah, you can see your skull. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's really unnerving. And that's part of it, right? She looks like an insect in some shots. Absolutely, yeah. It's like a insect slash the, the sort of stereotypical idea of the green alien head. Just no, oh, nothing yeah. that helps her emote, just but just big, big eyes and big mouth and nothing else. Yeah. There's got to be somebody who can do that now. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, I feel like Hulu with the act, with the sort of... Oh, the Joey King series. The Joey King series with Patricia Arquette is sort of trading in on some... Some Piper Laurie slash Sissy Spacek realness. Um, I don't... uh, I think that that show is probably a bit too mannered to really replicate the insanity... Inherent yeah, no, in Carrie? True crimes are limited by the idea that we have to be real, which means less than... I mean, human beings are insanely exaggerated sometimes. Absolutely. But, yeah, the idea of a true crime show means you have to go for sort of an emotional minimalism, minimalism or, or leering... Yeah, you can't get to the, the weird truths at the heart of this movie. That's true. Whereas this, I mean, prioritizes emotional response over events Mm -hmm. and i feel as though i mean thinking about the musical is truly never far from my mind but but it's it's failure really comes from trying to put words to carrie's experience where there are none it's just pure pure rage pure sadness pure loneliness um and the fact that it's so beyond description is the thing that makes it so gripping and so relatable to everybody we've all felt that intensity of feeling, especially in that narcissistic teen space where you're like, the world is mine. Everything's about me. Yeah. <laughs> no one else has ever felt this way, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. What do you mean I got a beat? <laughs> yes. Ah, I refuse. Bring the rage. It's time now. <laughs> I, but I see the appeal. I mean, I can I can see how you would talk yourself into making it a musical because of the, the base rule of musicals is that the, the music starts when you can no longer articulate your feelings right. in words. So yes, if, if, if there was a way to translate that, 
but maybe only for Carrie. Mm-hmm. And even then it would become like, I don't know. I don't know how it's already so heightened. I don't know how you handle the musical transitions. It's true. It, it, you're exactly right. It's so, it's so heightened already that there's nowhere, there's nowhere to go. There's mm-hmm. just nowhere to go. Um, unless you're doing, I mean, the one song that truly works, it's crazy. It's called Andy was weak. Um, the staging of the, it's the, the number where she shoved into her closet, okay. but instead of that, she's being shoved into the cellar and it's just an unrelenting five minutes of Betty Buckley scream singing at the audience while Carrie screams in the background and the strings are going crazy and then the rest of it tries to evoke more of the teenage experience. If the entire thing was going to be this Baroque rock opera... Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the way you can make it work. Like, it's Tommy. It's it's Tommy. Yeah. You're right. Or Grand Guignol, or however they pronounce it. Just the, that sheer excess becomes the aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that I can see. I can see. I I would go back for that. Oh, I, I mean, that song. Up one of these days they're going to have to make Phantom of the Paradise into a stage show. It's truly only a matter How of time. Have they not? I know, right? It feels insane that someone hasn't tried this. I mean, it feels... They ins- probably did, and six people died, and we'll never, <laughs> we'll never find out. The, gri- oh, no. the, the grips are buried in the theater. We'll never know. They're like, stop throwing the neon lightning bolts. <laughs> but they work. They work so well. In our defense, they do work <laughs> for murder. <laughs> Look, you asked me to design this thing. I did it. I perfected it. Yeah. I don't know what you want me to say. I've been shoveling cocaine into my nose since <laughs> seven this morning. There's a bomb in every car. <laughs> That's right. And I thought, you know, I reached a point where it's like, why stop at one? Just, <laughs> exactly. They're really easy to build once you get the rhythm going. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll be hearing from Ceases. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. But this seems like a good way out. Uh, <laughs> amazingly enough. I knew we would tip into mania at some point. Of course. Uh, but but yeah, you've, you've sort of touched on it, but is there, a, the final question of the podcast is always the same. Is there anything of Carrie De Palmas or otherwise that you have relied on or used or incorporated as a touchstone or, or just full on stolen into your own creative DNA? Absolutely. I think the thing that impressed upon me um, at a young age, before I even knew I wanted to be a writer, um, was the importance of tapping into those, the most primal, scared, bad feelings of yourself. And it's something, no matter what I'm working on, even in a comedic space, I'm always thinking about, it's so powerful to take something of yourself that you find scary or monstrous and mine that for content. Um, And and seeing that seeing that wildness in someone was just so exciting to me in a way I didn't know how to articulate and certainly in a woman I'd never seen anything like it before so that that sort of emotional wildness and access to something really deep and hurtful is something that I think is always so effective mm. um and something I have always tried to bring into whatever it is I'm working on which is probably why a lot of my comedy is so angry <laughs> I mean, how can it not be at this point? Oh, right, exactly. It's, I mean, that's the other thing that works for me. Yeah, but, but it, that's something too, right? That's If that's where we are, if everybody is angry all the time, then where does a Carrie fit? Like, how does she, how does she make herself known in, a, in, in the story? Like, it can't be the same. You couldn't do the, like, I don't think prom works the same way anymore. I agree. We're all too ironic and self-reflexive. So what do you do? 
I mean, I feel as though the anger of it has to has to translate in a different way. I know the Kimberly Pierce adaptation tried to traffic a little bit more in social media and depicting the moment on YouTube and whatnot. There's another horror film, and I can't remember. Oh, the it's name unfriended, of it. right? It yeah, unfriended. Yes, yourself. yes, yes. Yeah. That's exactly right. Um, but it sort of moves into into that space where. You're right. Everyone feels this anger. That's that's not necessarily what the film can tap into or the concept, I suppose, can tap into anymore. It's more the idea of being exposed, I think, on such a on an uh, increasing level, the mm-hmm. idea of the perception of you um, suddenly being, you know, codified and turned against you and never being able to gain control. I mean, that's another big thing about Carrie, too, that's so tragic is is. We talked about it a little bit earlier, but that idea of power, the idea that no matter how hard you try, you can never scramble outside of your assigned role. Right. And and so the social media aspect speaks to that a little bit, that there there could be a way that the public perception of you could turn in a way that is um, unfixable and permanent. And that's a very frightening notion and and something that I think I think more horror movies outside of this concept would, would try to tap into. So you'd make it about Sue. You would make it. It would about be Sue. about public shaming. It would totally be about that. And how a, the survivor of a catastrophe is eventually exposed as part of the authors. I think that's absolutely right. I think huh. that I think that would be what it was. I think it would be more about her attempt to control the narrative of this of this thing, and which kind of leads into her actions in the the film, that her sort of desperate attempts to control her own self narrative about what this means about her and the person that she is, it would just happen on a more public scale. Yeah. Which is frightening. But it could be really fun. And relatable. And very relatable. <laughs> Hashtag everyone get off Twitter. Yes, exactly. I was going to say, we're only two tweets away at any given moment. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, John Ronson's a friend of the show. We'll see what we can do. <laughs> John Ronson, help us. <laughs> Please. My thanks to Jocelyn Getty, who you can hear every week with Cat Angus, friend of the show, on their delightful pop culture podcast, I Hate It But I Love It. I would obviously recommend episode 13, where they had me on to talk about M. Night Shyamalan's signs, but really, you can pick anyone. It's a consistently entertaining podcast. There's an episode about Now You See Me Too, where I think Cat has a psychotic break trying to explain the plot. Anyway, that's fun. Go listen. You can find Jocelyn on Twitter at Jocelyn Getty, all one word, and you can find Carrie on Blu-ray in an excellent special edition from Shout Factory in North America and from Arrow Video in the UK. There's a DVD available from MGM as well, but it's just, you know, it's, it's not as good. Uh, the movie's also available on iTunes and Google Play. Just make sure you get the 1976 version, not the other ones. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy the show, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening.